turn out of the reading and preaching of God's Word. So I invite you to take a copy of the Bible and turn to the first epistle of John. If you go backwards in your Bibles, you have Revelation and Jude and then 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. This morning we'll be reading the last half of chapter 1, starting at verse 5. I would like to add a little addition here. I know it says we're going to verse 10, but I'm going to go ahead and read through chapter 2, verse 2. 1 John 1, starting at verse 5. Here now God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, And walk in darkness. We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. This is God's word. May he bless it to us this morning. Amen. Let's pray. Our most gracious God in heaven, how we give you thanks that you have spoken to us and you have condescended to us in your word. We confess that we are ignorant, that we are slow to understand that we would grope around in the dark were it not for your self-revelation in Holy Scripture. So we pray, dear Lord, that as we open up your word and as we look at the treasures therein, we ask that you would openly portray and live in color and vividness the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. We pray all these things, asking you to bless us now. In Jesus' name, amen. In an age of advanced technology, this age in which we live, you would think that we would be beyond uh, this irksome thing that we call troubleshooting. I think of this every time I uh, print out my sermons or my Sunday school lessons. I wonder uh, that morning, is my printer going to work this morning? Or is it going to give me trouble? Fortunately, uh, I printed out my sermons before I left Georgia uh, to come here just to make sure uh, that I would have them here ready to go. Uh, But if you don't know what troubleshooting is, uh, when something, if, if a device gives you trouble, 
Uh, hopefully it came with a manual and you can open up the manual and it has a bunch of if-then statements. If the device is doing this, if it's giving you this warning message, then you can try this. You can push these buttons. You can turn it off and back on again. All of these things to help determine whether or not something is functioning properly. And if it's not functioning properly, to help you figure out why and how to fix it. That's what troubleshooting is. And unfortunately, even though we can uh, cut out cancer from people and we can go to the moon, uh, we still have to troubleshoot printers and the like. The first John, the first epistle of John, we can think of as something like a troubleshooting manual for the Christian faith. Now, of course, in saying that, I'm not saying that it's some kind of self-help book. It's not one of these things like we hear from the prosperity preachers where if you just want to have a better life, a more successful life, uh, more money, more happiness, then you can just go to this book or anywhere in the Bible and you can find these things. It's not what I'm saying. Rather, uh, if we look at just a little bit of the background of 1 John, we know that 1 John, uh, that John wrote this, uh, this general epistle. It's called a general epistle because it was written to a general wider audience than, for example, the letter to the Corinthians, which was written to a very specific audience. John wrote to a general audience, a wide range of churches, essentially to help them discern whether or not their religion, their Christianity, their faith in Christ was indeed genuine, whether or not it was true. If you read 1 John, which I would encourage you, it wouldn't take uh, very long. If you read 1 John, you'll find that in this epistle there are many if-then statements, just like our troubleshooting manual. And many of these if-then statements are quite absolute. If you believe this, you are either walking faithfully, or if you believe the opposite, you're not walking faithfully. If you confess this, that determines whether or not you are in the faith. If you obey this, you obey God's commandments, then the true love of God indeed abides in you. And the historical reason for this is because the first century church, for those of us who are familiar with the history of it, we well know that the first century church was very quickly overwhelmed by false teachings. And not false teachings regarding uh, tertiary matters. These were false teachings that uh, very much threatened people's immortal souls. It threatened damnation, in fact, if they were believed and if they were practiced. And for John, the most damaging was that of Gnosticism, this ancient heresy, this teaching that while we could get into the specifics and we could wax eloquent for many hours about what Gnosticism really is, essentially, for the purposes of this epistle, it was a philosophy that uh, denigrated physical existence. It thought that matter was inherently evil. And that because of this, uh, the physical body, the human body, essentially doesn't matter to the Gnostics. What really mattered is the soul, the spirit. And so, essentially, you can live in sin, you can live in indulgence, you can pursue your physical lust. It ultimately doesn't matter because your body is evil anyways because it's physical matter and it's just going to perish and rot. And what's going to last is your soul. That was the sum and substance of Gnosticism. And John is saying here, in his first epistle, an unqualified no. This is not the case. John says, if anyone does not walk 
If anyone does not live as Jesus himself lived, if anyone does not follow his example, if he does not walk in the light, then he does not have the love of the Father in him. And he is not a true Christian. And he can have no hope of possessing eternal life. And so John was, in writing this letter, combating these Gnostics and trying to rescue his audience from the fire, as it were. And so as we open up this passage, I just want to give you the simple theme that's going to be the theme of our sermon this morning, and it's simply this, it's that God calls his people, God calls his people always to be walking in the light. That's the theme this morning. God calls his people always to be walking in the light. And the reason why this is important to understand is that Scripture is quite clear, not just in 1 John. In fact, you know, it is quite prominent in 1 John, more prominent than other places, but all throughout Scripture is quite clear that there are only two ways to live. There aren't three, there aren't four, there aren't n- numerous. There are only two ways to live. Jesus says quite clearly in Matthew 12, 30, He who is not with me is against me. Everybody in the world, everybody in this room, including me, you're either saved or lost, you're either slave or free, you're either righteous or wicked, you're either in the light or in the dark. There's no third option. Everybody who has ever lived, save Jesus Christ himself, is in one of these two camps. There is no third option. And it's very important, I hope you understand, to know which you are in. In fact, it's really the most important question we can ask. How do I stand with God? And it's especially important to ask even now as we live in a, granted, deteriorating culture, but one that has uh, deep Christian roots where Christianity is quite cultural and in many areas of the country my own included, Christianity is just assumed. And yet many people believe they are walking in the light because of this, believe they are Christians, when in fact they are not. It's a very important question to ask. And so again, the major theme here is God calls his people always to be walking in the light. And what we're going to see here from this text is that John gives two reasons why this theme is not only important for you to understand, but also important for you to do, to always be walking in the light. And we're going to look at two reasons why this is important. And the first reason is this. We'll look at verses 5 to 7 here. God causes people always to be walking in the light, first of all, because light can have no fellowship with the darkness. Light can have no fellowship with the darkness whatsoever. <clears throat> we see here in verse 5, the reason... That God is light. God is light. This is one of the great is statements of scripture. It's important to realize uh, what this means when John says God is light. John is not saying that God is like light. He's not saying that God is comparable to light, but rather he's saying God is light. Now I'm going to ask you to put your theological thinking caps on for just a second. This is very important to understand theologically because we, when we talk about God theologically, there's this great doctrine that in many camps, unfortunately, has come under some attack, even in some reform circles. But we speak of this idea of God's 
simplicity. This teaching that God is not composed of parts. That he is not a composite creature. But this has very profound implications. It might seem like a very heady doctrine at first. Okay, God is not composed of parts, so what? Well, it has very important implications. In other words, God is his attributes. We confess that God is omnipotent, that he is omniscient, that he is omnipresent. But it's not as though you can take omniscience and omnipotence and omnipresence and all the other attributes of God and throw them in a Vitamix and turn it on and out pops God. That's not how this works. God is his attributes. And so God is not merely just, but God is is himself justice. God is not merely good, but God himself is goodness. He's not merely exhibiting light, but as John says, he himself is light. And it's because of this that Habakkuk 1.13 tells us that God cannot even look at wickedness. He cannot, even, uh, he cannot even bear to look at sin precisely because he is light. Not merely because he disagrees with sin, which of course is true, but it's far deeper than that given the fact that God is light. Because God is light, sin, wickedness, which is darkness, is not just a matter of disagreement, but it's an actual affront to his very nature. It is against what and who he is. I heard a a report very recently from a friend of mine about uh, someone else I know, a very negative report about something he did, and I was taken aback by it because I was thinking, I know this man. This is so out of his character. This is against who he is. I know surely he wouldn't do this. It's just not who he is. Well, in the same way, God, who is light, and sin, which is darkness, is very much like oil and water. They cannot mix, not even slightly. God cannot intermingle with darkness because he is light. And so therefore, in verses 6 and 7 here, we see that we have two options. And again, there are only two options. That is all that is afforded to us. You either walk in the darkness or you walk in the light. As I said a moment ago, this this idea of walking is a metaphor that John likes to use. Walking simply refers to how you live your life. And the reason why he uses this, I think it's, uh, it's, it's more than just a Hebraic way of talking. But it's actually significant why he says this. You either walk in darkness or you walk in the light. He uses this word very deliberately. Because many have interpreted uh, this passage to mean that anyone who commits any sin at all, ever, is not in the light. And so you have these theologies that go back and forth that say, well, you can be saved. But then if you commit a sin, now you're out of fellowship with God. You need to be re-justified and re-saved all over again. Re-regenerated, even. 
But John chose this word, this verb, walk, very carefully. He's referring to a lifestyle here, a pattern of life. John was no perfectionist. I think it's rather clear in the passage that we just read that John uh, said very quickly that if anyone sins, and really we could translate that, when anyone sins, sin for John was just a fact of life. It's not a good one, of course, but it is a fact of life. But John was no perfectionist. He knew that Christians commit sin. But here's what he's saying. No Christian makes sin a lifestyle. No Christian walks in sin. And so again, there are two options. You have those who walk in darkness. Darkness obviously being a metaphor for sin, for evil. But more fundamentally, it's whatever is opposed to God. Whatever is opposed to who he is. Whatever is opposed to what he says. As John will go on to say, Chapter 3, verse 4, sin is lawlessness. Darkness is the absence of light. It wants nothing to do with the light. And again, I, I want to impress this upon you that sin is not just disagreement with God. It's an affront to who he is and what he is as the one who is himself light. And so there's a hostility here. And so... The message here is that regardless of what one says about themselves, regardless of one's profession, the one who walks in darkness, the one who walks in sin, the one who makes sin a pattern of life is one who says by his actions that he hates God and he wants nothing to do with him. Because in the same way that God as light is opposed to darkness... Darkness as darkness is opposed to God in every way. They cannot mix. That's the one who walks in darkness. But then you have the one who walks in light. We could put it this way. The one who walks in light, because God is light, is one who is, in the truest sense, God-like. He's like God. In fact, this is the created purpose of man. If you think of Adam and Eve... It was mentioned in the, the prayer earlier. Adam and Eve literally walked with the light, walked in the light. And it's, the ironic thing here is that Adam and Eve were deceived by the prince of darkness, that they had no true light, and that the only way to have light, to be God-like, is to actually... Sin and to take it to fruit that was forbidden by God. And in doing so, Adam and Eve ceased to be godlike. They fell from light into darkness, from fellowship into open hostility. And so the point here, I hope, is very clear. Your, your profession, or rather your faith, Your life, your walk, must match your profession. It must match your profession. This is, after all, the message of 1 John. If you say you believe, he says, and yet live in a way that contradicts that, you are living a lie, and you are, in fact, a liar. And worse than this, and this is the most serious implication, 
and we'll talk about this a little bit more later, but to contradict your faith, or rather to contradict your profession by the way that you live, is not only to be a liar, but it's actually to call God himself a liar. Again, we'll get to that a little more in just a moment. But for now, just consider how wicked and how terrifying it is to even imply falsehood in God. But those who walk in darkness, those who walk in their sin, those who make sin a lifestyle, whether or not it's out in the open, even if it's in secret, that's exactly what they do. They call God a liar. In fact, that's what all of us do every time we sin. Did you realize that? But every time you sin, you call God a liar because it contradicts your profession. And again, I'm not just talking about public sins here. You might portray yourself well to others. And we fallen men, we are very skilled at doing that, are we not? We go to church, we go to work, we put on our good face, we hide our darkness. We cover it over. Oh, but God sees what we do in secret. God sees our thoughts. He knows our hearts. So you must understand that your, your life, it must match your profession. But also, you need to not be deceived about the nature and the effects of sin. Do not be deceived about the sinfulness of sin. Sin puts you, whether or not you're a Christian, sin puts you at odds with the God of heaven, the creator of all things. It puts you at odds with him. We'll talk more about this later, but you must not think that sin is no big deal. You see, we have this, there, there, there is a gradation of sins. There are some sins in the sight of God that are worse than others, our catechism tells us in and of themselves or by reason of several aggravations. That is true. But we are so prone to use that gradation and say, well, as long as I'm not engaging in pornography, but I hide lust in my heart, then I'm fine. I'm not killing anyone, but as, you know, holding a grudge, I have to do that because somebody has wronged me. Do not be deceived about the nature and effects of sin. It is an affront to God, and it will destroy your soul apart from his grace. Without fail, the smallest to the greatest sin, all of it, will destroy your soul. As John Owen famously said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. It's very true. And so God calls his people always to be walking in the light. First of all, because light can have no fellowship with darkness. But secondly, there's our second reason here. But improperly dealing with darkness, improperly dealing with darkness has eternal ramifications. We're looking here at verses 8 and following. Improperly dealing with darkness has eternal ramifications. We've now been confronted with who and what God is. He is light, and we've seen the only two scenarios that we could possibly find ourselves in. We are either walking in the light or we are walking in the darkness. And now that we've been confronted by this reality, we have several options before us that John lays out. The first thing we could do after being confronted with this reality is to simply claim that we have no sin. Now I know uh, nobody in here, likely, at least I would hope not, 
would actually claim, whether by your mouth or in your thoughts, to have no sin. Surely no one in here is that self-deceived. But there are other ways to fall into this trap, is is there not? Of course, you can openly claim to have no sin. You can think about, I mean, even, even just the prevailing philosophy of the day is the, is the idea that everybody is inherently good, right? But we Christians, we might not claim that we have no sin, but we very often mem- we minimize our sins, either by not being real about what they are, either by not confessing them specifically, either to the, to the one whom we've offended or to God himself, or we just think nothing of them. Again, we think, well, I'm not doing the worst possible thing. This is how we claim to have no sin. And in this case, John's assessment is clear. He says, if this is you, then you are a liar. And if you read the Bible, you should come to no other conclusion. As Paul says in Romans 3, there is none righteous, not even one. All have turned aside. No one seeks for God. There's no fear of God before their eyes. And so to claim to have no sin, or to claim some kind of fundamental goodness, or to minimize your sin in one way or another, is just a straight-up lie. It's simply not true. But as I said a moment ago, worse than making ourselves liars, we make God a liar. Because after all, it's God's word. For example, there in Romans 3, it's God's own word that condemns us as sinners. It's God's own law that consigns us to judgment. It's God's own mouth that calls us guilty. I remember watching a, uh, a court proceeding. It was just a short video that I saw on the news, I don't know, a year or so ago. And there was this heinous murderer murdered several people, and he was, uh, the clip that I was watching was his uh, the, the jury reading the conviction. They found him guilty unanimously. And uh, I didn't know this at the time, but uh, apparently it's, it's common practice in court that when that happens, uh, judges will often open up, to, open up the floor to people uh, to say some things. Either the, the victims of the, of the convicted uh, criminal or even, in, as it was in this case, the family of the criminal. And in this particular clip, uh, it, was, it was really astounding. The mother of this murderer, now again, this man had just been convicted. The, the, uh, the um, verdict had just been read. And the mother of the murderer actually stood up and began defending her son in open court. And the judge shut her down. And he said, this is abhorrent. This is abominable that you're doing this. The verdict has been read. Justice has been rendered. I will not have this in my courtroom. But imagine, how much more abhorrent is it in the courtroom of heaven to attempt to defend ourselves against the sentence or the verdict that has been delivered upon us? as guilty sinners before God. Because unlike this earthly judge in this video clip, the judge in heaven 
sees all things. He knows all things. He's entirely good. There's no hypocrisy with him. There's no evidence that he misses. There's no testimony that he's missing. When he renders the verdict of guilty, it is absolutely without fail true. And so whether we claim we have no sin, whether we claim some kind of fundamental goodness, whether we minimize our sin, how abhorrent is that to God? We not only make ourselves liars, but we make God a liar. And so when confronted with our sin, that's our first option. We can just simply claim to have no sin. But our second option here, and the one that is far more advisable, is not to claim we have no sin, but rather to confess our sin. To confess our sin. We can be open and honest about our sins. We can recognize that sin is any failure to conform to the law of God. It's any transgression of it. As our catechism says, it's any want, any lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. And we can recognize that because of this, we stand under the law's scrutinizing gaze and we stand condemned outside of Jesus Christ. We stand condemned. We cannot escape God's judgment. And we recognize that if we stand before God, if you stand before God in your own skin, not clothed in the righteousness of Christ, you will be judged. And you will be lost eternally. And so what John here, inspired by the Holy Ghost, urges his readers and us to do is to fall before God on our face and confess our sins. Because the reality is is that God has promised that our sins will be forgiven. Says those who confess their sins will be forgiven, and God is faithful and just to do so. And I wonder if you have thought about what it really means to have your sins forgiven. I remember being a child, and I, I grew up in a, in a context where it was believed that you could lose your salvation. And in fact, quite easily. And I remember as a child, I really struggled with this. And in many ways, I even struggle with it continue, uh, continuing on even into, today, into uh, today. But I thought that God, when he forgave me, that it was a reluctant forgiveness. That he forgave me begrudgingly. That he approached me, as one writer has recently put it, holding his nose. That's what I believed. And I struggle, if I'm completely honest, I struggle with those feelings even today. And I have to work to suppress them. And you know, the reason why I think that is because I think that God is like a man. Because you know, when men forgive, even the most, even the men and women that have the most integrity, Sometimes even they, when offenses arise again, they will bring that sin to remembrance. Even if they don't say it, they'll remember it. But with God, when he forgives, the Psalms say that when when God forgives a sinner, it says he casts his sins as far as the east is from the west. If you think about that, that's a really, really long way. It says that he forgets their sins. That he remembers them no more. And if you think about what a paradox that is, that the God who never forgets, 
who's known all things from eternity because he himself has decreed all things from eternity, that to have God described as one who forgets sin and does not remember sin, now of course we know that he, he, he doesn't forget that, and that it falls out of his knowledge. But he remembers them no more. In other words, he, when he forgives sins, when he forgives you, that that sin not only will not, but cannot be brought up ever again. They are literally removed from your account because they are dealt with in Christ on the cross. That when God does not uh, remember sins, that when he forgets his people's sins, they'll never come up again. They'll never be brought to remembrance. God will never hold a grudge how wonderful is this? Not only will our sins be forgiven, not only will our status be changed, but we will also be cleansed. Our unrighteousness will be cleansed. Not only will we, will we be forgiven, but our condition will be changed. God has promised not only to forgive, but to restore. Not only to declare righteous, but also in sanctification to actually make righteous. It's what Augustus Toplady was getting at when he wrote famously in his prayer to God, Be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and its power. He forgives our sins and he he cleanses our unrighteousness. There are several things that I want you to take away from this this morning. First of all, I'm just kind of reiterating the point here. The first thing you need to do is you need to take your sin seriously. You need to take your sin seriously. The reality here, again, is that probably no one in this room denies being a sinner. But at the same time, it's become something of a slogan in our culture. And I know I've said it, and perhaps many of you have said it. Well, nobody's perfect. Even something like that is, while on the surface it sounds like some form of humility, what it's actually doing is it's, minim- it's minimizing one's faults. It's making light of our sins. It's to turn attention away from the infraction that we have committed and to focus upon the excuse of our imperfections, as if our being imperfect made our sins more acceptable or better. It doesn't. So we need to take our sins seriously because no such excuse will be given or can be given to God on that final day, I assure you. On judgment day, no sinner will stand before God and say, well, nobody's perfect. It's not going to work. In fact, I imagine that, a little bit of speculation here, I imagine it will be like that judge in the courtroom I mentioned earlier. God's not going to have that. Not in his courtroom. And so yes, while nobody in here claims to be without sin, many of us minimize our sin. We think to ourselves, well, nobody saw what I did. Or, even worse, I know God will forgive me. 
very dangerous thing. So we need to take our sins seriously. And you also need to understand this, that no Christian progress will be made or can be made unless you hate your sin. Walking in the light means hating sin. Where light is, darkness by definition cannot exist. Light, the Bible tells us, and even our common sense tells us, expels darkness. They cannot coexist. Walking in the light means having sin exposed and dealt with. You must hate. I'm not just talking about a feeling of hatred here, but hating your sin means taking action to kill your sin. By God's grace and by the strength he provides. And brothers and sisters, this is more than just hating sin because you got caught committing it. But it's actually hating sin because of what it is. It's an affront to God's nature. It's an affront to his person and his holiness. And so I wonder as we think about this, when's the last time you've grieved over your sins? And I'm preaching to myself here probably more than anyone else. When's the last time you've actually grieved about your sins? Again, not because you got caught, not because you fear the temporal effects of what it might cost you in your earthly life, but actually grieved over your sin because you realize what God has done for you. Because you realize that your sin is a trampling underfoot of Christ himself. Because you realize that sin is an affront to God's righteousness. So no Christian progress can be made without this hatred of sin. Then thirdly and finally, I want you to understand that the Christian life is to be one of confession and repentance. For those of you that have read uh, Martin Luther's famous 95 Theses, that's his first thesis. It simply says this, When the Lord our Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, he willed the entire life of believers, the entire life, to be one of repentance. So this is how John opens up his troubleshooting manual of the Christian life. This is how he begins to uh, kick the wheels, as it were. He wants us not to be deceived. Again, God is light. Therefore, if you say that you know him, if you claim to walk in the light, and yet in your daily life you cherish your sin, you hide your sin, you cuddle your sin, you give your sin safe harbor, you don't even think about your sin... I want to understand that if that's you, you're in great danger. And the call for you is to repent and to turn from it because you may be deceived. God and darkness cannot mix. And yet so often in this passage and in this epistle, we focus upon these tests, these if-then statements, determining whether or not our Christian faith is real. And of course, we should think about these things. We should focus on them. We should never take away the teeth out of this passage. I remember years ago I preached uh, not from 1 John 1 but from 1 John 2 probably I don't know, six, seven years ago and I was actually afraid to preach it because it was so strong and I was afraid I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rip the assurance out of out from under every Christian in this room if I preach this passage as it really is. But we shouldn't do that. I was wrong when I did that. We should not do that. We should let the passage sink its teeth into us. But at the same time, and this is what I want to leave you with, at the same time, we must not forget the great promises here. If you look at verse 7, John says, If we walk in the light as he, is, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. 
And in verse 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then He goes on, as we read in chapter 2, to show us that if we sin, when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins. And so not dealing with sin has eternal ramifications. But the reality is this, and this is what I want you to understand. Sin cannot not be dealt with. Sin, all sin, will be dealt with. No sin will go unpunished. Not a single one. But here's the reality. And the good news. Sin will either be dealt with in you, individually, and personally, and eternally, or your sin will be dealt with in another. And that's the good news because the sin of God's people was definitively, finally, and perfectly dealt with in His only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you think about this passage, I mean, just think about the insanity here. That God would say, as he says to us here this morning, come to me, simply confess your sins, stop lying to yourself, come to Christ, be cleansed of all your guilt, and I will forget your sins. I will cast them as far as the east is from the west. What insanity is it for someone to say, no thanks, it's not for me. God has given his son, Jesus Christ, for this very purpose. And so the call here this morning, whether or not you're a Christian, whether you're in or out of Christ, be reconciled to the Father. Stop walking in darkness. Cast off your sin. Fall on your face before the throne of mercy. Come to Jesus Christ, confessing your sins. Because the wonderful promise is, as we will see this evening, is that Jesus Christ is no hesitant Savior. He's a quite willing Savior. No sin you've ever committed is too difficult for him to forgive. And he delights to forgive sin. And he will never cast a weary sinner out. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, how we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have made such amazing and immense, indeed inconceivable provision for us, not just in our daily lives, but Lord, how much more you've provided for us the forgiveness of sins. And because of what Jesus Christ has done, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Because the sins of his people has been laid upon him. And so Lord, we... We plead with you that you would impress these things upon our hearts, that we would live our lives in the light by your grace, confessing our sins openly to one another, to Jesus himself, and that we would flee empty-handed to the cross. He would teach us to know our sin, to hate our sin, to cast it off, and to cast ourselves at the feet of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.